All right, you ready to get into the Word? Yeah. All right, I'm excited. So I want to share with you, uh, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the church at Ephesus. This is part three. Um, three different Bible studies on the one letter. I don't know, will we ever get through the seven letters to the seven churches? No need to rush, right? Might as well have a Bible study every week till the Lord comes, and we'll take our time with it. So quick review, let's read, let's turn uh, together to Revelation chapter 2, and uh, we'll read um, verses 1 through 7, and then we'll just dig in and go. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Praise God. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. What has been exhilarating to me, and I have studied this before, uh, it's been a long time since I've taught on the seven churches, but every time, I mean, it's like every one of these points that I come across could be a message that can be preached on any given day, and so I'm learning so much more and seeing so many more things as I dig deep and study. Quick snapshot, uh, remember Ephesus was uh, the wealthiest city one of the main thoroughfare cities, crossroads, a, a city under a Roman rule, uh, a city where the pagan, um, pagan worship and superstition, pagan superstition was at its highest. That's where the goddess Diana was worshipped in the temple of Artemis. Um, so, you know, it was a, a, a seriously, we kind of equated it at one point to on the East Coast, maybe New York, on the West Coast, San Francisco, somebody said, as, as, as harbor cities that are main thoroughfares for coming into America. But, so that's just kind of a snapshot of the city, and I think that it's important to get a picture of where this church is at, the, the lifestyle, the culture that they would be in. Uh, that that would dictate. I believe you know how many believe Jesus is pretty smart and he's pretty wise. And when he and when he inspires a letter to a specific church, he has considered who they are, where they are, why they are, and what he needs to say to them. And so it's been really interesting to me as I begin to just uh, put more and more pieces together, dot the eyes a little bit more, cross the t's a little bit more, and get the the picture of it all. Let's remember that Jesus commended them. He commended this church in Ephesus for their willingness to work hard, or as I said one time before, to sweat for Jesus, to work up a sweat working for Jesus. Uh, Jesus commends their willingness to endure hardship, 
with grace and joy. I mean, we could preach a week, a week of Sundays on enduring hardship with grace and joy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And Jesus commended them. Uh, he also commended them for their willingness to, to not only test all things, but to test the witness, the walk of, of those who say that they were apostles and were not, as the Scripture said, to test those things. I think that the church as a whole, the church body as a whole, and we as individuals who make up the church would be wise to strive toward the things that Jesus commended, and that we would be wise to do everything we could to steer clear of the things that he condemned. That's why we're looking at these seven churches in the book of Revelation, the premier end times book in the Bible. It, these letters to the churches could have been maybe in the Gospels based on what they're being said, but they have something to do with the end times, and that's important for us to see them in correlation to the last days. And I think even more so to see them in correlation to being prepared for the coming of the Lord. Because he is coming after a church without spot, blemish, or wrinkle. ruh -roh. Huh? I don't know of a church that has no spots figuratively, blemishes metaphorically, or wrinkles spiritually. I can't imagine, I don't know, I have a hard time imagining that church. Maybe because I'm a pastor, and I know where the spots are at, where the blemishes are at, and where the wrinkles are. <laughs> uh, but I want us to be ready for the Lord's coming. Amen? And so it's up to us to do everything that we can to, to, to decipher the things that the Lord commends in these letters to the churches and, and strive toward those things corporately and individually. And I think it's, it behooves us to also strive to steer clear of the things that he condemns or else. <laughs> One of God's or else's, right? Unfortunately, the church at Ephesus, they had lost their focus. I mean, it, when you look at the letter as a whole, Christ had nothing but good things to say about this church in this major city, except for one thing, that they had lost their first love. Uh, they were doing all the right things. They were just doing all the right things for the wrong reason, they somehow, over time, had morphed into a church that was doing everything out of duty and were doing very little, if anything, out of devotion, out of love. It's pretty apparent that if they had, I would think that we can assume that if they had lost their first love, which is talking about their love for Christ, that although they did all, they dotted all the I's of being a church and crossed all the T's of a church, uh, they may not have been a very loving church church. I think that it goes to say that uh, they judged and tested people who said they were one thing. Good for them, the Lord says, but there's a good chance that they may have done that in a very judgmental, unloving fashion. Because if you got no love for Christ, you're not going to exemplify love for people as much either. I think, I don't remember whether I said it last week or on Sunday, one of the great compliments that I hear often about this church right here from newcomers that come here, that they were just astounded at how friendly, how uh, kind and loving 
the people were here at the church. And I mean, as a pastor, let me tell you what, that just puts wind in my sails to know that we got a friendly, loving, caring body of believers here. Amen? Um, that being said, I wonder, wonder where our spot is. Where's our blemish? Where's our wrinkle? Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, he says, uh, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The fact that there can be a testimony or a witness of Res Life here being a loving church could also be an indication that we still remember our first love. You know what I'm saying? So I'm thankful for that. But so that's, I wouldn't say that that's across the board. Uh, we have to remember that losing your first, the remedy for losing your first love is to remember from where you're fallen, repent from having fallen, and get back to do the, doing the things you did before you fell. That's the way to kind of put it succinctly. Remember, repent. Uh, repent is, is really about acknowledging that the failure is yours, mine. I'm not going to go to the Lord and repent uh, and blame you. Well, at church, those people, man, they're so mean. So it made me sin, Lord. I drank a fifth of vodka, and I didn't. I'm just using it as an example. So I'm sorry, Lord, that I got drunk. But those people at that church, they'll drive a preacher to drinking. See, that's what, I, no. It would be, and again, I'm using an analogy, all of you online, I don't drink, I haven't drank in years. This is just water. Um, uh, it would, the way to look at it would be, Lord, I, 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 I was weak, I I failed. I'd, Lord, uh, I'm so sorry that, that, I, that I got drunk and I drank that. And Lord, I, would just, I, just, I just failed you. I failed myself. I, I take full responsibility. I acknowledge, Lord, that it was my sin and I sinned against me, myself, and I sinned against you. And Lord, would you forget? That's taking ownership of having done it and not cast the blame on somebody else. And then, you know what? Just get back to doing the things you were doing before you fell. So the Lord now morphs into giving a commendation. He started off by giving a, commenda a commendation uh, over three different areas. And then he sandwiched in the middle there. He said, but I got something against y'all. Now this is, this is a huge thing that he has against them. Because remember, God is love. Everything that Christ did was about love. And yet he's saying to them, you've forgotten how to love. You've, you've left your first love. But now he comes back to it and he says, but I want to commend you again. And he says this, it's an interesting statement, and this is kind of where we're going to get to go uh, a little bit now, uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 6. Yet this you have, or but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. Now, for me to hear that one little sentence, especially the last part of it, it makes it profoundly important because he says, I also hate that. Uh, wow. 
God said that he hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He did not say he hated the Nicolaitans. And it also said that he, commend, you know, he commended this church for also hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. On the other hand, I think since they were apparently not a loving church, it might have been, they might have dealt harshly with the Nicolaitan group, right? So any, in any case, whether they did or they didn't, God hated them, excuse me, hated their deeds as the church did. So I don't know, I go, well, who, who, who are they? And what were they doing that God hated? That's the question that has to be asked there. Who were they? And what were they doing that God found so repulsive? Uh, so we're going to take a little journey along those lines uh, tonight because I think that there's some, there's nothing in the Bible by accident. Eh, well, let's just throw a little information about the Nicolaitans. Trust me, the Nicolaitans by name are only mentioned twice in the entire Bible, and it's all in the same chapter here. So there's not a lot of information about them specifically. Um, so they've been a subject of debate for a lot of years, theological debate, and that's because not much is known necessarily specifically about them. As I said, they're only mentioned two times in the entire Bible, and they're both right here in the second chapter of Revelation. Uh, we just read about them, and they're mentioned again in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And it says this. This is the letter that was written to the church at Pergamum or Pergamos. It's the same place. It's uh, transliterated um, one, or, one or both ways in any translation you may be listening to or reading. Revelation 2, 14 uh, through 15. But I have a few things against you. Again, remember, this is a different letter to a different church. Okay? But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So now we get a clue about some of the mindset and practices of the Nicolaitans because they're linked together with Balaam, Balak, eating uh, um, food offered to idols and sexual immorality. So apparently these Nicolaitans uh, in this particular church, they had corrupted the church at Pergamos, and we'll get into that in another study about that letter. But in Ephesus, apparently they had gone there, or at least were rising up there to try to influence that church to also follow the ways of Balaam and Balak. And that church was smart enough, wise enough, whatever you want to call it, to test them and found they, they're not true. They're not following the true gospel of Christ. They're following a completely different gospel, and they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So as I said, in this text we see that they are linked to the practices of Balaam. Now, I'm a pragmatic person, so I had to go, why, uh, who are the Nicolaitans and what, it is, what is it that they're doing that God hates? And then he linked it with the practices of Balaam. Pragmatic thinking means, well, then what are the practices of Balaam? That's kind of how I go about a Bible study. It's like one question raises another question. 
I, when I teach Torah time, uh, I always say, discover the question within the question, <laughs> because there's something else there. So Bible records uh, the seduction of the Israelites into uh, Im immoral and idolatrous um, relations, actually, with the women of Moab. Turn your Bible with me for a minute to the book of Numbers. That's right. We're going from Revelation to Numbers, because again, we see a connection about the Nicolaitans that they were connected to Balaam and Balak and the practices that were going on there. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 of Numbers chapter 25. Hopefully online you got your Bibles and are looking up, looking up Scripture with us. Wednesday night is Bible study night, praise God. Um, while Israel re remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, "Take here's how angry the Lord was. You better be glad that we live under New Testament times and not Old Testament times, all right? The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may, be turned, may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Uh, wow. Uh, easy probably to say God hates what they were doing. So much so that he was so angry under that dispensation. Thank God we're under the dispensation of grace today, amen. Under that dispensation, God says, here's, here's how I'm going to deal with it. And, and uh, church leaders, church leaders, be happy you're under a different dispensation now. Because in that setting, you as church leaders would have been sent out to execute those on your team that were involved in those practices. Yeah, makes for a good movie, but makes for bad church stuff. So because Revelation links Balaam with the Nicolaitans, we can assume, we, what we can assume, and I think rightly so, is that the, the practices of the Nicolaitans were some of these same practices that we see back here. And in fact, in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2 in Revelation, it said, it mentioned eating uh, food offered to idols and sexual fornication or fornication, sexual immorality. Um, so that began to make me think a little bit more about the city that they were in, the culture, the culture of the times. Um, I think that the church of Ephesus was facing the same dilemma. They had people within the church who were politically correct, culturally correct, and trying to get them to assimilate to the culture. And if we take a little look, which we will, about Ephesus and the culture of the time, you're going to find out why God commended them for their perseverance and endurance in hardship. It was a big deal for them to stand up against the Nicolaitans. A big deal. So remember this, that Ephesus was the 
center of pagan worship. It was the center of pagan superstition. It was uh, controlled by the Roman Empire, who were, had multiple pagan gods. It was so controlled by the Roman Empire, if you'll remember that it, I shared with you in, I think, the beginning of our discussion about Ephesus, that it was by rule that any Roman officer or leader who came there had to enter in through that city because it was such a core element of the Roman culture and the Roman Empire. This is a church in that setting, okay? And the influence of Rome and the influence of pagan worship were probably at their peak in Ephesus. So this is pretty cool. I think it's pretty amazing that the church at Ephesus had the gumption to stand against culture. I'm, I'm applying it to today a little bit. To stand against societal rules. Hmm? They had the courage to do Now, that, that they weren't doing it in a loving fashion, granted. But they, I mean, they were in the thick of it and standing up and going, no, we're not going to do that. So the letter to the church at Pergamum, which we read in verses 14 through 15, specifically charged them with uh, having seduced people into eating meat offered to idols and specifically charged them with seducing the people in that church in Pergamum to actually do acts of fornication, sexual sin. Now, this was all about pagan worship. You need to understand this. The, de the decrees of the Jerusalem Council, this is important. This is a little bit uh, getting a little deeper into theology. There's the decrees of the Jerusalem Council that were laid down, and they laid down two specific things for the Gentiles, Greek, Roman, Gentiles, to be accepted into the fellowship of Christianity, there was a few things that they had to do, and one of them was you had to abstain from things offered to idols, and you had to abstain from uh, sexual immorality, and these were the very things that the Nicolaitans were practicing. You can read about it. We won't read it tonight, but you can read about it in Acts chapter 15 about that decree of the council of, of uh, church leaders in Jerusalem trying to figure out what are we going? What are we going to do? How are we going to uh, accept these folks? But you need to understand this. This is a part of the cultural spot that um, really was like, wow! I had a wow moment. Roman rule required by law the sacrifice to idols. It was a requirement under Roman rule. Emperors used that rule in an attempt to weed out. Christians um, by enforcing sacrifices to various Roman deities. So again, think about this church, where they're at. They're in this city where they're under Roman culture, Roman rule, and the, the, the new order. Uh, I'm, I'm applying so much of this in my thinking about where we're at today and the things that are going to come up against the church. Here they were in the middle of it all. And they were instructed by law, you must offer uh, uh, sacrifices to pagan gods. But, get this, you had to go to the temple of Artemis to offer your sacrifice uh, 
to the God. The only place you could actually get the food that was offered to the idols was at the temple of Artemis. And at the temple of Artemis, they had temple prostitutes. And the people, in order to get the food, had to commit acts of sexual immorality with the temple prostitutes in order to get the food. Now, think about the slick trickery of the enemy there in Ephesus. This, I, I, I am so sorry that they got the bad rebuke about love, but I am so proud of this church at Ephesus. They make the church in America look sad. Now, granted, there's a whole lot of churches in America that have no love, but they're also bowing a knee to Baal, if you were, if you will. Are you following me? So think about that. They're in Ephesus, Roman rule. Uh, they're, they're under, especially in this particular case, the guy who was the emperor during this time literally was looking for Christians. Oh, gosh, does that sound a little bit like people in America now looking for folks who aren't wearing a mask or social gathering so we can report them. There's just some correlations. I'm sorry I'm putting together. But it just blew my mind to think about the fact that they were required by law to sacrifice to idols, and they had to go. Part of the sacrifice was eating the food, but you couldn't, you couldn't get the food anywhere but in the temple of the pagan god, and you couldn't get the food unless you had... Um, uh, connected yourself in some way to the sexual immorality that was part of that process. And in, within this church, there was a group of people who were Christians, but they were also completely connected to that pagan ideology, the best of both worlds. Crazy. So as I said, i got to take pause here and remind you that although Pergamum did fall hard to the culture, Ephesus, I don't know why, it's almost an emotional feeling around it. Ephesus did not fall to cultural rule. It speaks to us. It speaks to me. Revelation 2.6 again, but this, this you have speaking to the Lord, speaking to Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The people that compromised the Ephesian church, like, excuse me, the people that comprised, not compromised, I read that wrong, comprised the Ephesian church, hated the acts and deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, we need to understand that although the Nicolaitans are long gone, <laughs> they're no longer in existence, their ideology is still fresh and is probably becoming more alive in this season of our lives than ever before. And the church has a, an, a, church has a choice today to um, bow to American culture, um, to blend in with political correctness, or the church has an opportunity to make a decision to stand out. And if you're standing out, I got a feeling now, you can read the letter to the church of Ephesus and just think nothing negatively but negative stuff about them because they've forgotten their first love. But if you start considering where they were at and what they had to go through, you got to go, okay, I get it that they, they, they became an unloving church, but it, they didn't compromise with 
the rule of the empire. That's pretty cool. They weren't fooled by the deception. The Lord says you test those things. You test those who say that they are apostles, but they are, they're not. Um, It's debatable about where the name Nicolaitan came from. It's it's believed possibly that it came from one of the uh, uh, um, disciples that was a part of the first set of deacons. His name was Nicholas. And now that, again, that's just assumed theologically that Nicholas got off track and uh, got involved with not only pagan worship, but also old law worship and tried to mix in world culture, old law culture with the death of Christ and becoming the church of today. And he was wrong. And the church at Ephesus said, that ain't right. He ain't right. And we're not going after that. So, but again, it's just conjecture that their name Nicolaitans came from the proselyte Nicholas. Don't know whether that's uh, true or not. But they weren't fooled by the deception. They weren't willing to even tolerate the false teaching. Are you all listening? Because I don't know about you, but as I'm speaking it, as I'm studying it, I'm looking at what is happening here and I'm, I'm looking through that lens, and I'm, I'm going, where do I see Resurrection Life Church in St. Louis? Um, and boy, I, hats off to the Church of Ephesus. They endured the persecution. They were not only persecuted by culture, which, come on, y'all, Christianity, Jesus, everything about the church today is being persecuted. And not like the direct ways that it's happening overseas right now where multitudes are being ransacked and raped and, and, and beheaded because they're Christians. It's happening across the globe. All that's happening right now is saying, uh, you, you just need to follow our rules. I'm not becoming an activist against the rules because I am a drive-between-the-lines kind of kind of guy. Um, Man, they endured. uh, Here's why they they endured persecution but would not tolerate perversion. Let me say that again. They endured persecution but they would not tolerate perversion. Now, perversion is not just sexual sin. Perversion can also be a perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. (sighs) Gosh, there's so many churches today that have so perverted the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's been known as user-friendly church. It's been known as the watered-down church. And I will get into that more, especially when we get to Pergamos, because they were guilty of it. At least Ephesus said, no, that ain't happening here, and you're out. And I got a feeling they didn't do it in a loving fashion, because they didn't even have, they lost their first love. Are you getting the picture about them? So there are a lot of lessons. There are so many lessons to be learned here. But one particular lesson to learn is that Jesus hates compromise. Moral compromise and cultural compromise. I'm going to say that again. I'm going to say that again. I believe that we can see in this study that Jesus hates moral and cultural compromise. We think that right now we are 
having some difficulties being the church. It, you ain't seen nothing yet, honey, about what it's going to be like for the church in America, the church, the real church, the true church. When government starts wanting to shut us down and fine us and jail us and everything else that's, that is more than likely coming down the pike, who knows when, who knows where, who knows how. But it's in, it's, in the, it's in the text, it's in the scriptures that we will receive persecution and not just the light persecution that we're experiencing today. And how many churches, I wonder, are there who have just said, oh great, oh great Roman, oh great Nero, Caesar, we bow to you, whatever you say, we will do. You see, my stand to make a few statements about closing down and other things is not bravado. I know that the more I close down, the more I succumb to the rule of American culture that's an antithesis to Christ and his church, that the, the more I will become like the world. And I know that what, this, what, this, what we're doing is not a recipe for growth, so you should be happy that I'm not a pastor who needs to have multitudes to feel like he's doing his job. I can have... 40 of you, 50 of you here tonight just teach you the truth and know that I'm doing my job. Amen. Jesus hated compromise, both morally and culturally. Okay, now remember, we have to look at this as a, as a church body whole, but individually, because you and I as individuals make up the church body whole. So you have to look, we have to look at ourselves. Is res life compromising with culture is res life compromising morally and in that setting each of you should individually and I Rick Lopez needs to look at self and say Rick are you compromising with culture are you compromising immorally because Jesus hates that and unless I repent he'll remove my lampstand my name could be blotted out of the book of life. Heaven, heaven forbid. Are you all doing all right? Yeah. Now, don't you know the enemy's trying to get us to compromise? He'll do everything in his power to get us to compromise. We will talk more about compromise and the compromising church when we study uh, the church at Pergamos. But for now, let's kind of wrap up this exhortation, this letter that Jesus wrote through the hand of John to the church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. Oh, man, I, I just, God gave me, he just led me, in, man, I'm just so, ah, I love you, Jesus. I had so much fun studying this day, y'all. I, I want, do y'all have fun studying the Bible, or is it like a, a chore to, huh? Man. And I'm, and I'm pretty lucky. I've got a great staff here. They guard my time, especially on Wednesday. So they do come occasionally and look in my door. But <laughs> we'll wave. And <laughs> Revelation 2, verse 7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the true of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This is the salutation. Jesus admonishes the church of Ephesus by saying, He who has 
an ear. Now, it um, might be easy to go, well, doesn't everybody have an ear? So that Greek word for ear does mean ear, but it means something else about the ear. He makes the same statement to all seven of the churches in the salutation to the letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. The Greek word for ear carries with it the definition that, uh, within its definition, the faculty of perceiving with the mind, the faculty of understanding and knowing. It's not about this thing, these things on your head. It's about he who has an ear, he who can perceive and understand, he who can gain this knowledge. Let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. You can't walk out of here tonight and go, well, I ain't never heard none of that stuff before. You have to deal with what you're hearing tonight. Not just the fact that you got ears, but what you're hearing I want to read a couple of statements. I believe I have these for the uh, screen as well. John Gill commentary. I think this is pretty powerful. Did we? Were we? Oh, yeah, there it is. Such, and this is about having ears, such who have new ears given them. Oh, I loved this. As all have who are made new creations or creatures, such who have their ears circumcised and opened by the Spirit of God, who hear with understanding, affection, and faith, who test what they hear, approve it, and embrace it. And then uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary. I love this. This is, uh, this is invoked uh, what I'm going to have as a personal prayer. From, and you can take it on too. But Every man has an ear naturally, but he alone will be able to hear spiritually, to whom God has given the hearing ear. Woo! I immediately stopped right there and I went, Oh God, give me a hearing ear. Let me hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, whose ear, it goes on to say, whose ear God has awakened and whose ear God has opened. I want you all to begin to think about adding that to your prayer life. Lord, give me a hearing ear. Supernaturally open my ear to hear what you're saying. And, you know, help us to be sensitive to the voice of your spirit, God. That's what this is saying, being sensitive to the voice of the spirit of God. Help us have understanding. Help us to embrace your words, Lord. Help us to hear in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Now, the, the Lord goes on to make a promise to those that overcome. He made a promise to those that overcome. He didn't make a promise to every person in the church. He made a promise to those that overcome. And in that promise are two beautiful concepts. One of them is the concept of the tree of life, and the other is the concept of the paradise of God. Each of the seven letters finishes with a salutation of promises to those that overcome. The word overcomer, it means one who holds fast their faith even unto death against the power of their foes, the power of temptation, and the power of persecutions. That's the definition of an overcomer, not just someone who makes it through the day without cussing. But the person who 
will hold on to their faith in Christ even unto death in the face of foes, temptation, and persecution. First John chapter 4, verse 4 says, you are, God, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In the world, the culture, the uh, political correctness of the day. Romans 8, 37, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But we have to do something to conquer. We have to be willing to break a sweat for Jesus. We have to be willing to endure hardship with grace and joy. Again, think about Ephesus. Think of the city. Think of the culture. Think of what that commendation for enduring persecutions and perseverance and, and enduring trouble stands out way greater to me when I take a look at that church in the city they were in and in the culture of what they had to fight against and stand out like a sore thumb against. Be willing to test all things. Don't just swallow everything you hear. There's a lot of good preachers out there, and there's a lot of good voices on the, the radio, the internet, the video, uh, uh, YouTube video, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a lot of voices who sound good but aren't good and can say just enough to make you go, that was God. Well, guess what? Satan did the same thing to Eve when he got her to eat the apple. You need to be careful. Run as fast as you can back to your first love. Think about who you were, how you were, what you were, what you did when you first fell in love with Jesus. You were a burn everybody else's saddle. You invited everybody to church. You carried a Bible with you just for, just for kicks to put it in the face of people. You took it to work with you and set it on the edge of your desk. You carried a little New Testament in your pocket all the time. Couldn't wait at lunch to be seen out at the lunch tables reading your Bible while everybody, was everybody else was smoking and cussing and playing euchre. Run back to your first love. Here's, here's another one. Don't tolerate Christian compromise. Don't do it. We, we are going to be a church that is that to, we will not compromise the truth. And that's not spoken out of bravado. I don't want the Lord to look at us and say, you know what, y'all? Man, you had a lot of things right. Woo! I am so proud of you. You even loved because that's what people say about us. You even loved. But you so compromised with the, with the standards of the day that you, you don't even look like what you're supposed to look like. And then, of course, we, we recognize that to overcome is to also be sensitive to the voice of God. Be sensitive to the voice of God. And to those who overcome to the end, they're promised the tree of life. Now, this promise of the tree of life does relate back to Genesis chapter 2 in the Garden of Eden in an Old Testament fashion, but in the New Testament fashion, it refers to Jesus Christ himself. There are so many wonderful things to study about the tree of life, the Judaic viewpoint of the tree of life and what it was like and what Scripture has to say about it. But we need to understand that Jesus represents that tree of life to us today. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
John eleven twenty five. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Revelation 22, 2. In the middle of its streets and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits. Each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Revelation 22, 14. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you so much for teaching us through this letter to the church at Ephesus. Help us, Lord, to be the church you want us to be. When we are seen, may we be seen having love for people. May we be seen as a church that can endure the hardship of the day, hardship of culture, the hardship of persecution, the hardship of any other things that may come before us. May we be a people that says we will not compromise morally. We will not compromise culturally. We will not compromise theologically. Keep us safe from error, Lord. Keep us clean, Lord Jesus, as we keep ourselves clean. Help us by your great Holy Spirit. Help us to overcome, Lord. Help us, God, to have hearing ears. I want hearing ears, God. Sanctify and circumcise my ears, Lord, to hear what your Spirit is saying and strengthen us spiritually and physically to act upon what we hear. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Praise God. God bless you all. I pray that you all have a great night. Stay warm. Uh, and in the, not the sense of temperature, stay cool. Be cool, y'all. All right. <laughs> Call you blessed. We'll see you Sunday morning.